Good morning, Chapel family. I'm glad to be here this morning with you. If you would do me a favor and open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. If, you're first, if this is your first time here with us, we are tracking through the book of Acts. We just started our series last week. We are in chapter 1. We'll be in verses 12 to 26. If this is your first time here, you can grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that Bible. That is a gift from us if you don't have a Bible. You can turn to page 909. We do have some guests with us. From what I hear, there's a, a group of students from Cedarville. Is that correct? Yeah, all right. Yeah, and they're back. Why don't you guys stand up so we can say hi to you guys? Yeah, we, we like to embarrass people here. Yes. Thank you guys for joining us. We love Cedarville. We love what they're doing down in Ohio. Um, all right, we're in uh, verses. I, I said down in Ohio because I forgot where it was, but it's Cedarville. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. We're in verses 12 to 26. If you're with us last week, um, we're going to give you a brief outline of how the New Testament or how the author of Luke um, breaks down the book of Acts. And this is a simple outline, right? The first outline is that the church is birthed in Jerusalem, and Luke's primary focus will be in the first seven chapters on the church in Jerusalem. Then he goes on to move towards Judea and Samaria in the subsequent chapters, in chapters 8 through 12, and in the last chapters, 13 to 28, Luke focuses his attention on how the church advances through the uh, Middle East, but also to the known world. And we also know that verse 8 in chapter 1 is the primary verse. It is the key verse for the entire book of Acts, right? It's the most important verses because um, it's what we see throughout the book of Acts, and it's, this is what it says, right? It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We also know, and what we learned last week, that Christ had promised the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's not an it. He is a person. And we ought to recognize the fact that he is God. And Christ promises that he would give them the Holy Spirit. We know that we are the believers who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? Receive the Holy Spirit at our conversion. And we don't need to pray for the Holy Spirit to come down on us or to fill us, I mean, or to abide in us because he does that when we receive Christ, when we submit to Christ's lordship and kingship, the Holy Spirit enters our life and takes full control, and then we pray for the filling, which is the power to, to do ministry and to do work. So we'll read verses 12 to 26, which will be our focal point for this morning. Here's what I want you to notice before we read. There's two things I want you to take note that as we read this passage, I want you to notice who is present, who is present and what they do. This is in preparation of the Holy Spirit. 
And as they prepare for the coming Holy Spirit, we want to know who's doing what and what are they doing in preparation. I do a couple of things, and we'll explain that in a moment. So notice who's present and what they're doing. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olive, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, and James, and, Fi- and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture has, has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. I mean, that's kind of like an interesting way to, to put it, right? I mean, it's like we're reading scripture and it's like all of a sudden, here's how he died, by the way. You need to know that. Verse 19, and it came to known it, it, excuse me, and it, beca- it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadima, that is the field of blood. Verse 20, for it was written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his place. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice. Imagine having like three names. And Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So there's a couple of things for us to notice In preparation of the Holy Spirit, here are a few things that the apostles and the disciples did. The first thing that they did in preparation for the Holy Spirit, they obeyed the word of the Lord. Luke reports the ascension has taken place outside of Jerusalem, and they returned back to the city a Sabbath day's journey. What does that mean? It just means that he's pointing out the distance between the ascension and the location that they were going, a Sabbath day journey. What does that mean? That means it's about 0.7 miles in distance. So it was a couple of hours. I don't know how long it takes to walk 0.7 miles in those days, but it was a short period of time from the time Jesus ascended to walk back to the upper room. 
So one of the things they did, they, they obeyed the word of the Lord. Not only his word, but also his commandment, right? He told them to wait in the upper room, wait for the Holy Spirit to come down. What we also see in this section is who, who is present. Who are the people who are obeying the word of the Lord? And we take notice in verses 13 and 14. We can identify individuals who were not only individuals who saw the risen Lord, but also who were part of his earthly ministry. The first group mentioned are the apostles. And I want us to take note in verse 13 that Luke offers three names at the very beginning. He offers the name Peter, John, and James. Now, why is this significant? Because Peter, John, and James are going to be the primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem and also as part of the church movement in Judea and Samaria. We also know in Luke chapter 6 that the order is different. If you read Luke 6, you would see that the order of the apostles are different. And the purpose that Luke is drawing our attention to is that these three individuals are now the primary leaders of the church. They're the ones that are going to lead the congregation and lead the movement outside of Jerusalem. We also notice the individuals who obeyed the word of the Lord in the subsequent verses were women. And I think this is beautiful for us to remember that women were given special attention in the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. Why? Because it was a priority for Jesus. Jesus valued women in his ministry. He reached out to women. He included women to be part of his group of disciples. And we see in this verse that women are going to play a vital role in the ministry of the church moving forward, but more specifically here, that they will also receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not limited just to the Jews. Later on in the book of Acts, they're just not limited to the apostles, but they're also going to receive, women are going to receive the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important for us to point out because in the first century Jewish tradition, women were not valued. They were considered property by their husbands. And I think for us to glean on this passage is to, be, to remember that women are valued in the church, that Christ also died for women, and he has given them a purpose in the church. And if you didn't know, the vast majority of the ministry done in the church is done by women. Who holds most of our membership in the church? Women. Women are valued and honored by the Lord. And not only does he include the men who will receive the Holy Spirit, but in preparation of the coming of the Spirit, Women are waiting and obeying the word of the Lord. Women are valued, and we should value women in our church. What we also see in this passage is not only was a command given to men, the apostles and disciples, and women, not only did the men 
and women obey the Lord. This is what we see in subsequent verses after verse 13. In verse 14, Luke tells us that in preparation of the coming of the Holy Spirit, they prayed in unity. What did the apostles and the disciples do during this time as they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit? They prayed in unity. They were in unity. They stayed together in unity. They obeyed the word of the Lord together. They waited in the upper room together. And Luke is pointing out to us that they prayed in uni unity. A different translation of this verse, verse 14 says, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. They devoted themselves to praying together with the same spirit and with the same attitude. A major characteristic of the early church was marked by their unity and prayer. They anticipated the coming of the spirit together. They prepared for the coming of the spirit. They obeyed the last instructions of Christ together. Unity is an important characteristic of a healthy and vital church. In fact, Paul encourages unity in the book of Ephesians. This is what he says. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is an important part of the church. It's also sad to see that in our congregation, in many congregations, disunity abides. And I was thinking about this. Why, why, do, why do we as a church, brothers and sisters in Christ, why, why is there disunity? Why can't we get along? I know the Sunday school answer is because of sin, yes. But I think it's deeper than that. I think many of the problems that you and I face with each other has to do from our, come from our sin nature, but I think it has to do with our pride, a sinful pride, not a righteous pride, a sinful pride. I think many of us in the church value to be right more than to be humble. We would much rather have disunity with each other in our marriages, in our relationships, with brothers and sisters in the church so that we can be right and not be wrong. Do you know that you and I in this room have a bond together that's stronger than any blood relative that you and I have? Do you understand that, that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ? If you are a professing, believing Christian, you and I, us in this room together, have a stronger bond than our blood relatives. Why? Because we were bought with a price. We have one father. We have one master. We have the same spirit that abides in us together in unity. 
And yet, so often in our lives, resentment, bitterness, anger, frustration tend to keep us from being united together. And if we look at the early church, if we look at what Luke is describing, the Holy Spirit has not come and the church was united. In preparation of the Holy Spirit, they were praying in one accord. They loved each other. They cared for each other. Unity is an important characteristic, not only to the Holy Church, but for us. It identifies us with Christ, that we are united with him, and he is united with us. So the unity that we have with each other represents that unity that we have with Christ. And unity doesn't mean that we all have to think the same, we have to dress the same, because I don't like the way some of you dress anyway, I, that's not my style. I'm just joking. It's not about having the same political ideas or what we think about the social economic issues of our culture. It means that we are a family together, united under one God, one Lord. And it's our job to continue to build those relationships within the church. For what? For the sake of the gospel. Unity was more important to them for the mission that God will call them to than to be right. I've learned in my life, I'm not that old by the way. I feel old. I have an old soul. Side, so I love, I, anyway, okay. I love like going to bed at nine o'clock. I love like doing all, I have an old soul. But in my life, that's a side note, in my life, in the, in the, in the years that I've been a Christian, I've been a Christian for, for a long time, here's what I've noticed. That people are far more gracious to someone, far more merciful to someone who's willing to say, I'm sorry. That's all it takes for us to mend broken relationships, whether you're right or whether you're wrong. The only thing you have to do is say, I'm sorry, and people are far more gracious and loving to say, I forgive you, because it's beholden on them to forgive you. And if they're a Christian, if they love Jesus, they have to say, I'm sorry, or they have to say, I forgive you. Why? Because God, who sent his son to die for us, forgave us of our sin. So we, in return, have to do the same for others. Unity in the church just takes someone to go to someone and say, I'm sorry. Or go to the person and say, hey, our relationship has been different for a long time. Something's wrong. Let's talk about it. If I said something, if I'd done something, I'm sorry. I don't know what I did, but why don't you tell me? Guess what happens? The Spirit of God begins to work in that relationship by mending it back together, by giving you words of wisdom to speak, 
and giving you the humility to say, I'm sorry. How many relationships have we missed out on because we wouldn't say sorry? How many broken marriages are in the church because someone refuses to say, I'm sorry? How much more work we can accomplish in our culture, in our society, in our city, in our church, if we're willing to say sorry to each other for the sake of the gospel to advance in the city and to see the Spirit transform not only our relationships, but to see the Spirit of God transform the relationships in our community, our city, our state, our country, and our world. See, the early church, they were together. They needed to be together because we're going to see in several chapters later that they would have trials, tribulations, persecution, death, assassinations, and they needed to be unified together to stay focused on the mission, and that is to advance the gospel throughout the known world, and it costed them something, therefore, They had to make sure that everyone on the team, everyone in the group was together on the same mission. Question for you today that I'll mention later on is, are there relationships broken in your life that you need to restore? You can't keep preaching Jesus saves and he forgives sins and yet you would not forget the sins of someone else who's offended you. That is not being Christ-like. That is being self-righteous. That's sinful pride. Not only did the early church was identified by their obedience to God's word, not only were they identified with the unity among them in prayer, we also see in this passage that the early church, they prayed persistently. Another major characteristic we see in the church as they prepared for the coming of the Spirit was that they prayed persistently. All those gathered in the upper room continually devoted themselves to prayer. They prayed to the Savior, to the person who had just left. They had to communicate with him, and the only way to communicate to him because he was absent was to pray. And what did they do? They prayed. And what did they do? They, keep, they kept praying, and they prayed for each other. They prayed for each other. In response to God, think about this. Remember that the reason why they prayed, they prayed in response to God's faithfulness, right? He had promised that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, and that he was going to rise again. They witness his resurrection. Then he says, I'm going to the Father. They witness his ascension. And then he says, I'm going to send a helper. So guess what? They knew that God was faithful. And in response to God's faithfulness, they prayed. Because in Luke chapter 24, this is beautiful. This is what they do. In response to God's faithfulness, in response to, to Christ's ascension, this is what Luke says in his gospel. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Why were they continually? in the temple blessing God because they knew that God was faithful. They knew that if he said he was going to rise and they saw him rise and they saw the resurrected Lord, then if he said he was going to send his spirit, then they knew that he was going to do it. So in response, they praised him. 
for us, this is a beautiful testimony that not only do we bring our prayers before the Lord, think about this, right? That we have access to the Father through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit to walk into the throne room of God, not in a literal sense, in a figurative sense, walk into the throne room of God in prayer and ask God, you need to do this because you are powerful and you are good. We are sinful and we need you. And the testimony of our prayers, the testimony of prayers since the book of Genesis had been God we need you and we need you now but more beautifully that we see in the New Testament is not only that they were marked by prayer by asking God to do things more importantly they were praying prayers of praise and thanksgiving not only do we pray asking God to help us we need you those are good prayers but we also pray Prayers of thanksgiving and praise, knowing that God is faithful, knowing that God was faithful and that God continues to be faithful, not only to his word, not only to the people in the word, but also to us. Has God not been faithful to you? Have you not seen his promises in scripture revealed to you by the illumination of the spirit? Have you not seen the testimony of the spirit working in you in prayer? There should be shouts and praises to the king. We shouldn't be silent. Football games, basketball games are people cheering on the basketball players. And we who know the resurrected king, who have the spirit of God in us, should respond with prayers of thanksgiving and praise. Not only that, that we continue to bring prayers of praise and thanksgiving to the Father day in and day out, realizing that he is the one who has accomplished his promises in scripture and also to us. We... It's about time. It's been like 30 minutes already that you guys have been quiet. (laughs) They responded to God's faithfulness with prayer, not petition, with praises and thanksgiving. We, the application of this passage is that we bring praises and thanksgiving to the Father because what he has promised in his spirit. In preparing for the Holy Spirit, they prayed... They prayed, asking, I mean, excuse me, praising God. They were in fellowship and unity. But also what we see in subsequent verses, particular 15 to 26, in preparation there were some things that they needed to take care of. So what was the result of their prayer? We'll see the result of their prayer was that church leadership was restored. Why did the church leadership need to be restored? Well, we know that in this passage, Luke recounts what Judas has done. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. He then kills himself. And now the early church, the apostles, have decided that they need to replace Judas and fulfill actually what the Old Testament had prophesied. So what Peter does is he stands up during the meeting and says, in fulfillment of Scripture, because he's reading the Old Testament, he's reading the Psalms, he's reading Psalms 69, 
And he says, wait a minute, Psalm 69, this is about Judas. And then he reads other Psalms, I think it's Psalms 109, and he says, this is about us, that we have to replace Judas. And now he replaces Judas, not because Judas has died, it's because one, he has to fulfill the, the prophecy in the Old Testament, but two, he wants to, for the testimony of the church, wants to replace Judas for his betrayal. So he stands up in the congregation and he says, this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy concerning Judas. So Peter, in remembering Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, he's going to read it in light of Jesus. First explaining what had happened about Judas' defection and he wants to honor the scriptures, he wants to honor the Old Testament, and he wants the church, the church leaders, to restore its leadership. Luke interrupts this message that Peter has by explaining to Theophilus, who Luke writes to, to explain the details of Judas's death. And the reason why he interrupts Peter's message is to shed some light for the reader to understand why is it important for that the church to restore its leadership and also to explain a theological concept that I think is for, important for us to discuss. Many people will read this passage and suggest because God had ordained and because God is sovereign that God elected um, Judas to be an agent of evil and his sole purpose was to portray Jesus. That's not what this passage is saying. The reason why Luke brings up and interrupts Peter's message is because he wants Theophilus and he wants us to know that the reason why Judas betrayed Jesus was because of his wickedness. Look at verse 17. It was now, um, excuse me, 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Luke is reminding that it was Judas who chose to betray Jesus. It was Judas's decision. In fact, Peter actually mentions that again in his message. When they're praying to replace um, Judas, he actually tells in his prayer, right, that Judas was the one who chose to go to the place that he went. What does that mean? It means that Judas made a decision to betray Jesus because of the wickedness of his heart. Judas was never saved. He experienced the blessing of being with our Savior. He experienced the fruit of being part of the fellowship of believers in the disciples, but he was never saved because he was wicked. Because all that Judas want, he wanted the things from the ministry. He, he didn't want the presence of the person of the ministry, which is Christ Jesus. So there was an issue in the church. The issue was, what do we do with Judas? And they planned to resolve the issue. How? Through prayer. They used prayer as the means to accomplish what they needed to accomplish in restoring the church leadership. So the result of prayer is actually restoration. 
It's restoration. And some might look at this passage as well, that, well, no, they really didn't pray. They used um, a, a form or tradition in Judaism to cast lots. Now, if you know what casting lots is, basically it's, it's stones um, similar to what we had dice on the stones. Um, they would have something on it to signify a design, a person, a name, a title, whatever it is. They would shake it up in a jar, and then they would cast the lots. And if the lots fell on a certain way, or if a stone fell first, that's how it happened. No, no. Um, that's what is the tradition. In fact, this is the last time in the New Testament that the disciples and the apostles will use uh, the casting of lots. The reason why they use it is because, one, this was the, the way they chose and elected people. This is the way they made decisions in the Old Testament. In the absence of the Holy Spirit, after this point, they don't cast lots anymore. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit provides wisdom and guidance for their decision-making. And remember, the Holy Spirit is absent in this moment. So they revert back to a Jewish tradition by casting lots. But it wasn't the lots that selected Matthew. It actually was the prayer. Remember, Peter prays. He says, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. It was God's design that they would pray. And it was God's sovereignty that would elect Matthew to be part of the church leadership. And we see that now that they've casted the lots, now that they've had chosen a leader to replace Judas, they are ready and they're prepared to receive the Holy Spirit. They're ready to receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit that would now work in them. But the question for us this morning is, the question that should come and stir in our hearts is how, not that we would do the same things that they did, but what are the principles that we can apply to our own hearts? The principles of unity and the principles of prayer. My question for you this morning is that as they were preparing for the Holy Spirit, how have you in your life, in your relationships, how has the Holy Spirit influenced you? How has the Holy Spirit used you? Is there unity in your relationships? Is there unity in your ABF? Is there unity in your small group? Is there unity in your family? Is there unity in your relationship? If we want to be used by God, if we want to see God do amazing things in the life of our church, if we want to see God do amazing things in the life and history of our church in the city, in our state, in our world, if we want to continue to see God move, the Spirit move at Camp Carl, we have to ask ourselves, are we united together to do the will of God? Are we united together to be on mission with God? Are we in the fellowship of believers united? Or is there disunity among us? Are we praying with each other? Are we praying for each other? 
how can we build unity in the church to advance the gospel, not only in our local church plants, not only at Camp Carl, but that we'll see next week in our church plants across the world. But we can't do that very effectively if there isn't unity among us, if we ain't praying together, lifting each other up in prayer. Why don't you take a minute this morning, bow your heads with me. Why don't you allow the Spirit of God to convict you in this moment and ask him, show me the relationships I need to mend, relationships that I need to restore, people that I need to say sorry to. Who have I hurt? Why don't you ask the Lord as well? Lord, where, what are some opportunities I have to obey your word? Where have I fallen short? Where have I disobeyed your word? And didn't follow your commands. And didn't listen to your promptings through your spirit. Father God, we need you. We need you in the life of our church. Would you create in our hearts, in our minds, humility? Would you, by your power of your spirit, move in our hearts, tug on our hearts, to move towards people we've offended, we've hurt, God, we want to live on mission for you. We want to obey the great commission. We want to follow after you. We want to be exhausted by the gospel. We want to see the gospel advance. We want to grow weary knowing that we have faithfully pursued your word. But God, we can't do it together if we're not united. God, bring unity in our church. Bring unity in our relationships. Bring a deep passion to pray and to pray for each other and to pray persistently, God. To pray your will be done, not only in our lives, but in our relationships and in the life of our church. God, would you do these things as a testimony of your faithfulness to us so that we, in return, can testify to an unbelieving world that you are a God who restores broken relationships, that you are the God who mends broken hearts, that you are a God who's gracious and merciful towards your people who are wayward and far from you. God, would you do these things so that you can receive the glory? God, make us missionaries to the ends of the earth in our county, in our city, in our state, in our country, and in our world. God, would you send us out by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, the people of God say,
There are gonna be pastors up front to pray with you, to pray for you. We'll see you next week. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.